burying your parents is sad but acceptable because they've lived a long and happy life but losing a baby is unacceptable it's just not what you expect seeing your child who looks a bit like you a bit like your husband you know then you you feel this surge of love immediately so um yeah kind of sending her away to mortuary and uh, that was hard bit because i didn't want to let her go your mind has to be quite ordered and you have to speak to the relevant people you have to you know even register the death you know organizing the funeral picking a cemetery i think when something like that happens you don't know what to think and actually being given decisions to make almost gave me something to do and something to focus on losing a baby is every parent's worst fear at a time of shock and overwhelming grief they have to make a whole range of difficult and important decisions that can seem totally bewildering one of them is whether or not to have a postmortem the decision can often divide parents dr philip cox is a perinatal pathologist he's actively involved in training and educating hospital staff who approach families for consent i wouldn't argue that all babies should have a postmortem but i would argue that every family who loses a baby should have the opportunity to make a decision over a postmortem so i would say that that there is value in any postmortem that is undertaken whatever the circumstances one in 200 babies dies as a stillbirth stillbirth is 10 times as common as cot death in many of them we don't really fully understand what happens but information from postmortems can help to bring us some better understanding of of what what is going on it's only by looking at large groups of babies that that we can possibly come to an understanding of of really what's happening in in many of those babies and and then potentially do something about it and and prevent at least a proportion of those um those deaths happening Nick and Alamania Tarkis noticed that their daughter Eleni had stopped moving the night before they were due for a routine antenatal appointment at 29 weeks I had presumed that we'd probably do a a cesarean and get the baby out immediately. I kind of thought well you know that would just be the norm. But they said no you have to go home for 2 days and come back in 2 days to to give birth which at the time I thought was horrendous and with hindsight was probably the best thing they could have done because I think at least I was mentally prepared 2 days later that you know obviously I didn't have to do anything physically but I I knew that I was kind of ready to be there and be supportive um I think it only took 6 hours from induction to me giving birth so um I was quite grateful for that I think at home we were giving all this information packs sans brochure asking all these questions if you want to see your baby if you want to take photographs uh, what do you want to do about the burial and postmortem as well so um yeah in those two days we, we we pretty much as we could try to discuss you know what what we want to do and uh, we decided just to do everything so to see a baby have photographs have postmortem just pretty much everything 
Claire's story was admitted to the day assessment unit at 28 weeks because her son Jacob's movements had slowed. The condition she refers to is associated with a higher rate of fetal death. I had a reversed end diastolic flow through the umbilical artery, which meant that they wanted to get him out fairly quickly. It was a very out-of-body, very shocking out-of-body experience to be whisked into theatre at 28 weeks when you're not expecting it um, and to have him taken away. I, I, and then eventually seeing a tiny, tiny baby in a very big incubator full of wires and... I think it's very difficult to feel like a mother in that situation when you're being told they're very, very sick and you've got to be careful about even touching them. Um, certainly wasn't able to hold him until he was dying. After Jacob died, we had a lot of contact with his neonatologist, who was superb um, and came and spent quite a lot of time with us. And we, the option for post-mortem was discussed. Our neonatologist felt quite strongly that that would be a sensible option for us, given the multitude of issues that Jacob had had with his kidneys and his clotting issues and the extent of the bleeding in his brain. Um, and I think we'd built up a very strong trust relationship with our neonatologist and really felt that if he felt that was important, to um, explore further than we would like to do that partly obviously to find out what happened to Jacob partly to we weren't at the stage of thinking about other children but it was put to us that if we did want to have other children it would be important to understand the underlying causes and also for future research um, for other families so really all of those things for me combined to thinking that's why we wanted to have a post-mortem after the post-mortem on their daughter Eleni, Nick and Alla met up with the consultant to discuss the results. The overriding impression and confirmation from the meeting was that there was no reason. And in my mind, I was hoping that if they did find it, it wouldn't be something serious. And next best would be to find nothing, because then we know it wasn't a kind of a serious genetic issue. We, we still want to know why and we still ask why and, and that will never be answered, I don't think. Many parents feel frustrated when they receive an inconclusive result to their child's post-mortem. But as Dr Philip Cox points out, a negative result is still a very important one. Yes, we don't always find the cause of death, but that in itself is important in the future management of, of, of pregnancies for, for the mother. Uh, so depending on what classification you use of, of stillbirths, anything from 60% are negative or unexplained is the, is the term that's used. But even that unexplained group are a group, and it, in effect it's a diagnosis similar to sudden infant death syndrome in that it's an unexplained natural death in, in a child, and that does inform the obstetricians and the family for future pregnancies. So that is, you say, whilst it is negative, um, quote-unquote, that is actually a, a useful piece of information. Fetal growth retardation, or failure to thrive, is now thought to explain 43% of stillbirth. Parents who consent to a post-mortem might also be asked to give permission for an organ or tissue sample to be retained in the hospital for a particular period of time. It was felt very necessary to 
look at his brain very carefully. So we were advised that it might take anything up to eight weeks to fix his brain to look at it and then to return it to his body, which we specifically said we wanted prior to the funeral. So he was actually away for four weeks. It was almost four weeks to the day when we had his funeral. For us, it was very important to have everything put back more or less where it should be. Um, So to have his brain returned and his other organs returned was very important. Although we did give consent for blocks and slides to be retained for the future and for research purposes. So we we didn't reunite those. Consent for post-mortems dropped significantly after the scandal surrounding Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool in the 1990s, when it was found that hundreds of organs had been removed and retained without authorisation from parents. It led to the creation of the Human Tissue Act in 2004, which changed the legislation surrounding the handling of human tissue. Philip Cox was a perinatal pathologist at the time. In the few months following Alder Hay... I was here at, the, at uh, this hospital and the number of postmortems dropped from 30, 40, 50 a month down to 10 or 15, but only for a few months actually. After that initial period, the uh, rates recovered uh, and since then the number of postmortems that have been taking place has been growing almost year on year. So the rates of postmortem aren't as high as they once were. In, um, there were hospitals where 90% of, of babies would have a post-mortem, uh, and I don't think we'll ever achieve that, and, and I don't think that's a problem. But we are now, for a lot of hospitals, at around 30 or 40% of, of cases will have a full post-mortem, and a, a proportion of the others will have at least some form of examination. But the time it takes for the results of the post-mortem to be processed can be very stressful for families. I think the most difficult thing around the whole thing was it took us weeks to have a burial. She was born on the 6th of August, and I think the funeral was on the 18th? 13th. 13th of September. September. So it was about six weeks later. Yeah, I just want to say that for me as well, just waiting to get body of Eleni back just to have a burial was awful. I just, I don't know, it's irrational in a way, but when you just think about your baby in, um, you know, in some cold, um, you know, cold room, dark, you just kind of want to just to lay her to peace, you know. It's important for parents to know that their baby will be treated with care and respect while it's at the mortuary. Sarah Davis is a deputy mortuary manager who assists the pathologist with the post-mortem and looks after the baby until it's released back to the family. How the babies are presented to us in the mortuary is that there's notes attached to the clothing asking a specific um, request from the family, can this teddy stay with baby, can these clothes be redressed on the baby and we always follow those requests and we make sure and all types of possessions are definitely logged here so whatever comes with the baby is released with the baby, Um, you know we, we take special notice of that and we are conscious that there are families at the end of, of a telephone, you know, anxious about their baby. And so we, we, all babies are definitely treated with, with respect and dignity at all times, and that's, that's a major part of our job, really. The majority of parents whose baby dies opt not to have a post-mortem. Deborah Crawley's son, Michael, was diagnosed with a serious heart condition at 24 weeks. 
He had to have open-heart surgery after he was born, but he didn't survive the operation. After Michael died and we were, we were given permission to, to hold him and take him, the nurse came and said that they could take the breathing tube out, but that if we wanted to have a post-mortem, we could. But my husband and I both said that surely he's been in open-heart surgery during the whole night, that they could see that he only had half a heart, so that he, why would he need to have anything more intrusive done to him? So we said we didn't want to have a post-mortem. If I hadn't known the cause of my son's condition, I don't know if I would have had a post-mortem or not. I know that probably my husband would have said yes. He, he is an engineer and he needs answers so that he would have wanted to know the answer. Although I do know that, having spoken to lots of people, that the post-mortem doesn't always give an answer. And that's really, really hard because everyone's searching for answers, aren't they? And that kind of closure and things like that. I don't think in all the time that we'd, we'd been diagnosed and everything, I don't think that anybody mentioned that he would die. And I think that's a little bit of a failure, really. But I don't know how you mention it, to be honest. I don't know how you mention it, you know, because you don't think your baby's going to die. You just don't think of it as an option. Penny Robertson is another mother who opted against a post-mortem. Her daughter, Lily May, died in the womb at 36 weeks. I was offered a post-mortem by a midwife from the hospital, but me and my partner turned it straight down, as we don't like the thought of Lily May being cut. That was our choice. The hospital did try to change our minds to say they would try and get some results. But when she was born, she had a short cord, which had to be cut, before delivering her. So they told us that could have been the reason. And then when I saw the consultant, he confirmed everything. They was the cord that made her pass away. So we didn't need a postmortem really to tell us that. I felt Lily May had been through enough. But having something tangible to remember their children by was extremely important, whether the parents decided to have a post-mortem like Claire or whether they didn't, like Penny and Deborah. When Jacob had died, um, at that stage the um, neonatal unit didn't have a dedicated room to take parents who were receiving difficult news or any kind of bereavement suite. So in terms of the actual time we spent with him after he'd as he was dying and after he died it was it was very confused and it was not ideal the nursing staff unfortunately the very experienced nurse who was looking after Jacob that evening went home and we were left with some very inexperienced nursing staff who didn't talk to us at all about memory creation they just whisked him off dressed him in something I would never have put him in um, and handed him back and said they'd taken some hand and footprints, but we weren't part of that process at all. I got handprints, footprints, and hair, and a piece of skin. They just did it. I asked for the hair, and I think my partner asked for the bit of the skin that fell off. But I think else I asked for, like, getting her dressed and 
having a wrapped up. All the things, the hair, the handprints, the skin and the footprints all went into my memory box on Lily May's shelf in my bedroom. I went on holiday quite soon after losing Lily May and I had a bag done with her picture on. And then I had some tattoos done with her name and a baby in wings in memory so I could have her with me all the time. When we'd laid him down, he looked different than he had from when he was alive. And we decided that, you know, his spirit had gone, if you like, and we didn't see him again. But I don't think I knew that I could, and I think my husband was uncomfortable. But you see, because we hadn't talked about it, because we didn't know what you could do, what your options are, I didn't know that I could go back and spend time with him. I don't I don't think I did. I knew that he was in The Undertakers, and I know that we drove past The Undertakers, and I thought I should have gone in to see him, but I didn't. Thus, there's always regrets. One of my biggest regrets is that he didn't get to meet his brothers and sisters because <clears throat> everything happened so quickly. We didn't know what was going to happen, and then he died, and then the opportunity was gone. If you or someone you know has been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, you can get more information from SANS, the Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Society, at uk-sans.org, or the SANS helpline, 0207 436 5881. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.